Hello, you are listening to the Nourish Gut Podcast. This space is for the woman who is suffering from digestive issues like IBS and SIBO. I am your host, Carly Raven. I am a naturopath, clinical nutritionist, gut health expert, and mother. My mission is to help educate you about IBS and SIBO and take you on a journey to resolving your digestive issues. I will have real conversations and give you solutions that I know actually work. So if you're ready to be bloat-free, poo better, have more energy and become free from the fear of food, then you are in the right place. Welcome back to another episode on the Nourish Gut Podcast. Today's guest is a really special one. Now, she is a complete microbiome nerd. She's a speaker, a writer. She's a qualified naturopath. She's an educator. She's lectured across, like, not just Australia, but also overseas. She is the director of education for Activated Probiotics and has over 15 years of experience in terms of education and research. And it is so exciting to have her on because it means that we get someone to speak to who is just across the board when it comes uh, to research and what's coming out. And we kind of get a little bit of insight today because she's just come back from overseas with some really fresh insight into some uh, research that's going to be coming out in the next five years. We dive deep into probiotic land. We talk about what they are, we bust some myths, and we talk about whether we should be combining um, antibiotics with probiotics in terms of dosages and timing. We talk about iron and how probiotics can be used to help with iron deficiency and so much more. If you like probiotics and gut health or you're a practitioner and you want to know kind of what's going on and what's coming out, then this episode is for you. A huge welcome to Rebecca from Activated Probiotics. Hello, Rebecca, and a huge big welcome to you onto the Nourish Gut podcast. I am beyond excited to have you with us today. Um, and we were kind of just having a little pre-recording chat. And I think it would be a wonderful thing to share with people about kind of what you've been up to recently. You've been overseas, you've been chatting to some researchers, um, and you have a little bit of insight, I suppose, as to what might be coming out in the terms of gut health or probiotics in the next couple of years. So um, maybe just start off by talking a little bit about that to us, and then we're going to start moving into some other really juicy stuff about probiotics and iron and antibiotics, and I can't wait. But yeah, what have you been up to? <laughs> First of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Kylie. Kylie, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, and I love any opportunity to talk about gut health, probiotics and research. And yes, I have just come back from a really fascinating research trip to Europe. Uh, one of the things I love most about the role that I'm in at Activated Probiotics is the 
I guess the proximity that we have to the real cutting edge of probiotic and microbiology research. And we're always interested in what's happening next. What are the best researchers working on right now? So we went to see some of the best researchers out there. And I can just kind of give you a little, you know, a little secret squirrel insight into what the researchers are looking at right now. So we've seen over the last couple of years, a really kind of Uh, an obvious move towards looking at different microbiome zones that are not just the gut microbiome. And something that a lot of researchers are focusing the time on right now is the vaginal microbiome. So this is a space where we've already started to see some great research, but there's a lot more coming. Um, There's also another microbiome that researchers are particularly into at the moment and in the coming couple of years, I think, and that's going to be the oral microbiome. So really looking at how what's going on in the mouth can be affecting not just the risk of things like dental cavities, but also the interplay with uh, the cardiovascular system and other aspects of health. And then to make it really specific and really, you know, really exciting, especially for, for clinical practitioners, there's also a lot of research looking at specific strains of probiotic bacteria and obesity, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes. And there's even some fascinating stuff coming out looking at Parkinson's disease. So over the next kind of five to 10 years, we're going to see a huge shakeup in the way we view probiotics, I think. We're really going to see them move firmly on from these are good bacteria that are great to take if you've had a gut upset into these are vital inhabitants of our body and they really drive our immune response to just about everything. And we're really going to understand more about the, what the presence or absence of particular species and strains of bacteria can mean for our future health. And chronic disease, that's what excites me the most, you yeah. know, is like seeing now we're starting to see, you know, not just for IBS, but massive chronic disease um, worldwide. So I think that's a really great lean way into talking a little bit about what probiotics actually are, because I think there's this understanding about them, you know, you're taking a probiotic and it kind of just puts good bacteria into the gut. Um, And when I'm talking to a lot of my patients, we're kind of moving away from that explanation because they do so much more than that, right? Absolutely. It's, I mean, I remember when I was a naturopathic student, which was a touch over 20 years ago, we used to very much have this idea that, you know, oh, probiotics are the good bacteria and you need exactly what you just said, Carly, you need to take them to put the good bacteria back into your digestive tract. And we now know that that's a way too simplistic way of looking at things. You know what, there is actually an internationally recognized definition for a probiotic and it's, it goes beyond just the concept of good bacteria Uh, to be called a probiotic supplement a substance needs to contain bacteria which are alive when they're ingested. They need to be ingested at an appropriate therapeutic dose and they need to have defined health benefits supported by published research. So technically that's what the definition of a probiotic is, but let's talk about what it means you know, for the, for the real person. Essentially, we are living in an absolute sea of invisible creatures all around us and on us and in us. Every surface of our body is colonized by microbes. 
every cavity in our body contains millions and millions of these little forms of life which are completely invisible to us. We only know they're there because we're learning more and more about what they're doing for us. So we are essentially walking hosts for bacteria. It's a little bit of a, a confronting thought to, to acknowledge that humans actually wouldn't exist if we weren't convenient hosts for bacteria. They really do pull all the strings when it comes to, you know, all life on earth. So what we need to understand is what it means to have different balances of bacteria in all of these nooks and crannies all over our body. And as research is progressing, we're understanding a lot more about the actions of different communities of microbes and what the consequences can be if we have a particular presence or absence of particular communities um, or even species of bacteria. So the concept of a probiotic <clears throat> is that we're taking, we are taking carefully grown um, cap you know, capsules containing carefully grown bacteria and deliberately swallowing them most of the time, uh, deliberately swallowing them to provide these particularly studied bacteria uh, to our digestive tracts where they can start interacting with our immune system and communicating with all of the different systems and processes that go towards keeping us healthy humans. So probiotics are so much more than just live bacteria in yogurt or dairy products, although that is a really commonly um, utilized aspect of probiotics. But really, it's about understanding what the individual strains of bacteria are and how they direct the activity of our immune system or the other systems that support us. Sorry, super long-winded answer there. No, that's fine. It's perfect. It's so good. And like one of the things that I really talk about as well is even just simply inflammation, you know, inflammatory cytokines and uh, the immune system as well. And then that how that links in with so many other conditions and the role that probiotics yeah. and have Absolutely. you know pathways. you know ultimately that's I guess if you if people ever ask me for a really short answer on you know what do probiotics actually do then there are two words that I will always use one is anti-inflammatory and the other is immunomodulatory and they're really kind of two sides of the same coin and that's ultimately you know exactly what you just said that probiotics are ultimately communicating with your immune cells to modulate inflammatory pathways, to influence the production of different cytokine groups. And then what we see in clinical outcomes is the downstream effect of that. So, you know, where we've got a particular strain that we look at for um, eczema, for example, when we give that particular strain of probiotic, which is lactobacillus salivarius LSO1, by the way, <laughs> when we give salivarius LSO1 to people with eczema, we see a reduction in the presence of their eczema and an improvement in their quality of sleep. And the reason for that is not that the bacteria are somehow traveling from the gut and you know ending up on the skin. It's that they are interacting with the immune cells which are embedded in the lining of the gut and traveling through systemic circulation and communicating with the microbiome they're interacting with these immune cells and directing them to down regulate the production of particular cytokines which influence eczema outbreaks so by giving just this one particular strain of probiotic you are basically directing the immune system to um, to be less less inflammatory and mm. the ultimate outcome of this is a reduction in eczema so it's so cool to see that you know just one strain of bacteria can have a really strong measurable outcome like that 
And this is where strain specificity is like really important, isn't it? Because I have a personal experience with that eczema probiotic and using that in my son when we started introducing solids um he started to get some eczema and uh you know other things going on also with obviously with his immune system rapidly developing and stuff like that um and it was like i think two months in total of using that specific strain for the eczema um within a month i was seeing the results and then you know two two months and then i you know ceased the use but that was because i believe the strain the specific strain i was using for him created that response and then the same thing can go alongside with you know plantarum 299v and things like that in inflammatory conditions of the bowel as well so do you have anything else to share about like practitioners using probiotics or maybe the general public using uh probiotics and strain specificity and you know that whole <laughs> you know yeah topic? that's probably it's probably the single biggest thing to get right with probiotics you know we get so many questions from people out in the general public things like what's the best time to take a probiotic and should I take it before food or after food and should I take it while I'm on antibiotics or should I wait and can I take it alongside this that and the other and honestly none of these are anywhere near as important as choosing the right strain of probiotic it is the most important thing to get right so first of all I'll just explain what we mean by strains specificity please do <laughs> it's such a cool it's such a cool phrase to say yeah. it's really fun in your mouth as well um but i always um i always have to you know have a little practice in the mirror a few times strain specificity uh what strain specificity means is looking for the strain of bacteria the exact strain which has been clinically trialed to produce the particular outcome you want to produce so let's take a step back and talk about what what, um, how we classify bacteria and what the, what their names mean. And if we take, you know, if we take an example, so you mentioned a second ago, Carly, Lactobacillus plantarum 299V, which is a brilliant strain. Absolutely love that strain. And if we look, if we look at that strain, it's got three parts to its name. It's got Lactobacillus, which is the genus of bacterium it is. It's got plantarum, which is the species, and then it has 299V, which is its strain name. So there are thousands and thousands and thousands of species of lactobacillus, for example. And then if we just look, so there's lactobacillus plantarum, like our example, there's lactobacillus acidophilus, which is a really well-known species of bacteria. There's lactobacillus rhamnosus. There's, you know, lactobacillus cassii and paracassii, hundreds of different species. Then within those species, we have individual strains. And a great way of thinking about this is to really equate it to something like a primary school. So, you know, if you imagine, imagine the primary school that your kids go to or that you went to as a little one, and let's imagine that that is the lactobacillus school. So all of the children who go to that school, they go to the lactobacillus school, but the school is made up of many different classrooms. And if we picture one of those classrooms, and let's call that the plantarum classroom. Oh, so all of these kids, <laughs> yes, very good, isn't it? All of the kids who, who go into that classroom, they're all in the plantarum class. And this is the species level. And then next door to the plantarum class, we've got the acidophilus class. And down the hall, we've got the rhamnosus class. But let's stick with the plantarum class. So all of these kids in the plantarum class, they go to the school of lactobacillus, but they have their own classroom where they all hang out together. They've got a lot in common. They have similar interests, but 
the important thing to remember is that they're still individual students and they still have their own individual talents. And most importantly, they get different results in tests. So if we picture the front row of this class, the plantarum class, we've got five kids in the front row. We've got 299V and then next to her, we've got LP01 and then next to her, we've got 6595 and then we've got heel nine and then we've got heel 19. And these are all individual kids in the plantarum classroom. Like I said, they've all got a lot in common, but 6595 has different interests from LP01 and 299V gets a better result on a particular type of test than HEAL19 does. So that's the level that we need to look at our probiotic bacteria at. We need to look beyond just whether they're lactobacillus or bifidobacterium or some other genus. We need to look beyond just if they're plantarum or acidophilus. It's not enough to just talk about the species. You know, it's very, uh, it makes me, you know, do a little eye roll when I hear people say something like, oh, acidophilus is good for this or plantarum is good for that or oh, for that position, you really need rhamnosis. When it's not enough to talk about probiotics at the species level, we need to know, well, which strain of rhamnosis do we need here? Which strain of plantarum do we need? So when we use the term strain specificity, we are talking about the equivalent of individual students in a classroom, in a school. I hope that that makes it a little bit um, helpful. Oh, yeah. absolutely brilliant. I think uh, everyone listening will be like, amazing. That makes so much sense. And so when we get that right, that's when we can start to see, you know, bigger changes to health, can't we? Yeah. So all of those, you know, to go back to the analogy, all of those students will have uh, their own special talents. And what that means on a research level is that all of the strains of probiotic bacteria that we use in probiotic supplements do have or should have very particular clinical outcomes that they've been researched to achieve. So when you look at the back of a box of probiotics, you should see that their full name is given there, say lactobacillus, um, you know, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. So that's a particular strain of probiotic bacterium. And there should also be a series of letters and numbers in brackets after that strain name. So for example, when you look at the back of a, a box of activated probiotics and you'll see Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG mentioned, you'll see in brackets after it, ATCC 53103. And that, that is the name that's given to that strain um, in research circles so that you can look up that international research number of that strain and you will see all of the clinical trials that strain has been through and that way you can see exactly what outcomes that strain has been found to have in um, you know in published research that means that as a patient let's say if we go back to our plantarum example let's say you've you know you've heard that there's a particular probiotic for helping you with iron absorption and you know spoiler alert there is and it is that probiotic bacterium is Lactobacillus plantarum 299V, you would be able to look at the back of a box of probiotics and see, oh, this one contains Lactobacillus plantarum 299V. That one is likely to help me absorb iron better. This one in my other hand that I'm looking at here, this one contains Lactobacillus plantarum 6595. They're both plantarum but only the 299V will help me absorb iron. The 6595 is doing something completely different. 
mm-hmm. equally wonderful, but it's not the strain you want for iron absorption. So getting to know the actions of the individual strains and what they can do in your body will help you make the best choice for which product you need um, to help you see the right outcome. It's so wonderful. And often um, some strains have multiple mechanisms of action too, don't they? Like, you know, I'm thinking of that plantarum 299B again. It's got to be one of the favorites right it always comes up multiple times you know it's such a great IBS strain as well yeah exactly so it's helping with the iron inflammation immune like there's so many you know whereas there are maybe a few would you say that are used specifically for one thing or would you say most strains have multiple uses and benefits Well, it's really about understanding what makes them different. So whenever a probiotic strain is entered into one of the kind of international research banks, the very clever scientists, and, you know, there's a whole world of clever scientists out there supporting, um, helping us understand how probiotics are working. The scientists will map the genome of each individual strain and they will understand what genetic differences strains have between each other and how those genetic differences code for the production of certain surface proteins. So for example, there are particular genes that bacteria possessed which code for the presence of pili, for example, so little hair-like projections on the surface membrane of bacteria. And if a a particular strain of probiotic bacteria has these genes which code for the presence of pili, that's a pretty good indication that that bacteria is going to be able to adhere to the lining of the digestive tract and that means it's very likely to offer benefits in terms of reducing the risk of for example antibiotic side effects or protecting from traveler's diarrhea because one of the actions of probiotics is actually in the context of protecting against things like diarrhea and thrush is actually sticking onto the lining of the digestive tract to basically take up space so that other more, you know, nefarious microbes like thrush, exactly invaders can't, (laughs) can't actually, they can't get a seat at the table Mm. to start causing problems. So understanding you know, the differences between the genomes of bacteria helps us to understand what mechanisms they might be performing, whether that is adhering to the lining of the digestive tract or whether it's producing particular bacteriosins or, you know, I always think of this as like chemical warfare. So some bacteria contain genes which help them produce substances which actually kill bacteria around them. So we can see that this is going to be useful for, once again, protecting from infection and reducing the risk of infection if we can see in the genetic code of a bacterial strain that it has you know, the, the genes to help it produce these particular um, bacteriosins. Or we might see... You know, we might see particular surface structure on bacteria, which means that they interact with um, immune cells in a particular way and help them to direct the activity of cytokine release. So, you know, the the differences are occurring at this microscopic genetic level, but it does give us a clue about the the multiple mechanisms they might be performing. Mm. I just, my mind blows. I always like, I just think we're always going to continue learning. Like 
in this space. Yeah. We've come up, we've, we've absolutely come a long way from thinking, oh, probiotics, they're good bacteria that live in yogurt and you drink them after <laughs> gastro. You yeah. know, now understanding exactly. these highly sophisticated units of, you know, Therapy. chemical communication, which are directing the way your immune system acts. But that's, it's science fiction. Mm. Genius, absolutely genius. And is there any new uh, or changes um, to how uh, long these species will, like when we ingest them, I could be wrong here and that's totally fine. Uh, The last I kind of heard was that around five days they can kind of sit in the gut. Um, I think there may be some strains that can be up to 30 days, um, but majority of the time is it still correct that it's around that? Because I do think so many people think that they're going to like take a probiotic and then they're going to stay in there forever. Um, Yes. And that's, again, that's a really important point that we talk about a lot in our probiotic education that probiotics, to use another analogy, you know, it's not like we swallow them and they start living inside us and having their own babies and families and living in us forevermore. It's a really big misconception that probiotics change your microbiome. Probiotics do not become part of your microbiome. Um, if again, if we want to set up an analogy, think about them as having renovations done on your house. So the probiotics are the builders. They come in and they make the place look better and you're happier living there. And then they leave mm-hmm. and they leave the house in a better state than how they found it. And so perfect explanation. Yes. <laughs> That's what probiotics are doing. They're passing through They are communicating with the lining of the digestive tract and the immune system, and they are improving the state of the joint, and then they're leaving. So probiotics are done. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) done. Now you've got a lovely new paint job, and everyone's going to be happier coming to your house. And so the way that probiotics change your microbiome is by improving the terrain, if you like, the health Mm. of the environment to attract a more diverse range of microbes um, moving in, if you like. And in this way, taking a probiotic can enhance the health of your microbiome by making your gut a happier place for microbes to hang out and helping you to achieve a more diverse and balanced composition of microbes. But they're not living there long term. Um, Different strains, again, it comes down to strain specificity. Different strains will hang around for different amounts of time. Most probiotics that you take will simply move through the digestive tract in a matter of days. Some strains hang around for upwards of a week and very occasionally there'll be a strain which has been shown to hang around for around three months. But most probiotic bacteria will pass through in a matter of days, Uh, but it's what they do while they're passing through, which is important. So again, that interaction with the lining of the gut and the immune system to essentially make, you know, make great things happen while they're there um, is what gives them their power. Thank you. That's awesome. Let's talk a little bit about earlier on the in when we're talking, you mentioned antibiotics and probiotics and whether we should be taking them together or separate. I still hear and see uh, recommendations about separating, you know, maybe two hours apart or you know, take your probiotics in the morning and then take the um, antibiotics at night or vice versa. But you have a very different thought and maybe some research around this. Can you share 
today with um, us about that? Sure. So, you, you know, you've probably gathered by now that we love busting myths when it comes to probiotics. <laughs> yeah. We love saying, oh, that's what you think. Oh, that's interesting because let's talk about what the research actually shows. And this is probably the ideal topic to highlight that. So we've, you know, what we hear over and over again, exactly as you just said, is people saying, oh, you know, you you can take probiotics while you're taking antibiotics, although maybe you're better off to wait until you've finished your antibiotics because they'll just kill all the good bacteria. Exactly. Um, or you should, you know, you can take them together, but you should separate them by two hours or four hours. And this is really interesting because there is no research suggesting that this is necessary. And it goes back again to two things. First of all, it goes back to that old idea that we used to have that probiotics are the good bacteria and you're putting them back in and they become part of your microbiome and they grow happily ever after. So we've kind of firmly put that idea to bed. Probiotics do not become part of your microbiome. You're not seeding anything by taking probiotics and that term of, you know, seeding the microbiome with probiotics that needs to die too. Um, so we're not seeding anything. You know, probiotics are very much powerful tools, which, as we've just talked about, improve the health of the digestive tract. So the first kind of part of that concept, you know, we've well and truly moved on from. We don't need to wait until we've finished antibiotics before we start taking probiotics. We can absolutely and we should absolutely take them together. The next part requires a little bit more kind of explanation, but it makes so much sense. So when we first started hearing from practitioner after practitioner, and that's practitioners of all stripes. So it's naturopaths, it's pharmacists, it's doctors. We just kept hearing from all of these people, take them two hours apart. And, you know, my research team and I, we've, we're the kind of geeky brains who are like, that's interesting. What's the evidence for that? Let's go and find out. And we found out that there is no evidence for this supposed two hour window. And we really realized that there is not really an acknowledgement of how antibiotics and probiotics are, are doing their jobs. So the kind of off often given explanation for why you should take them two hours apart is because the antibiotics will just kill the probiotics in the digestive tract and they won't be able to do their job. But antibiotics and probiotics are not in the digestive tract at the same time. And in fact, antibiotics never go into the digestive tract. Antibiotics are absorbed into the bloodstream as soon as possible. That's what they're designed to do. When you look at the reasons the antibiotics are prescribed. Is that mainly in the small intestine? Like do they go into the stomach, get to the small bowel, and it kind of absorbs from there? So antibiotics most of the time are given in enteric coated capsules. So these are, co are capsules which don't break down in the stomach. So antibiotics pass through the stomach most of the time as a complete capsule. The capsule then breaks down in a more alkaline environment, which is the very top of the small intestine. So the stomach enters into the duodenum, the antibiotic capsule breaks down in the duodenum, and then the substance inside the capsule is absorbed across the duodenal wall. The reason we want to have it absorbed across the duodenal wall is because this is where we have a huge network of blood supply, which flows straight from the duodenal lining to the liver. And it's in the liver that antibiotics are 
are metabolized by liver, different groups of liver enzymes, which convert the antibiotic drug into antibacterial metabolites. So any medication that we take by mouth goes essentially straight to the liver, where the liver acts on that medication, turns it into active metabolites or, you know, processes of products of um, metabolism and releases them into the bloodstream. Then these antibacterial substances travel all over your body. When we look at the main reasons antibiotics are prescribed, the leading reason is respiratory infection. So, you know, bronchitis, sinusitis, et cetera, um, followed by inner ear infections and urinary tract infections. Now your ear and your bladder are not in your digestive tract. <laughs> so, you know, your antibiotic doesn't stay in your digestive tract. It needs to get into your bloodstream as soon as possible to treat that infection. So antibiotics never pass through the large intestine, which means they're never actually in contact with the microbiome. And the reason I kind of love pointing this out is because we have so many people who get in touch with us and ask things like, oh, you know, I need to have antibiotics in hospital. Should I ask to have them via IV so they won't upset the microbiome? <laughs> And we kind of have to go, well, you know what? IV antibiotics affect the microbiome in exactly the same way that oral antibiotics do because they all end up in the same place, which is the systemic blood supply. The way that antibiotics affect the microbiome uh, through the blood supply is through the network of tiny capillaries and other blood vessels that supply all of the layers of the digestive tract. So antibiotics negatively affect the gut microbiome from the outside, if you like, from the blood supply feeding into the intestinal tract from the outside, rather than from the inside where the microbiome is, because antibiotics are never in the microbiome. I think now, getting back to the whole blown so yeah. many people's minds. <laughs> well, just getting putting that out whole, there. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> But it makes sense when you think about it. You think, oh, that's why you take antibiotics, you know, in your mouth for your infected toenail. Mm, um, totally. Because you don't, you know, you don't just rub them on the toenail because the way that your immune system treats that, that infected toenail is from blood supply. So we need the antibiotics in the blood supply. And how do they get into the blood supply? They're absorbed across the intestinal tract lining. And that absorption takes place right at the top mm -hmm. of the small intestine. Probiotics have the opposite story. Probiotics are not absorbed into the bloodstream ever. Their whole job is to stay in the intestinal tract or rather to pass through. So probiotics never enter the bloodstream. They never leave the digestive tract. They just keep on traveling. So if you take them at the same time as antibiotics, the antibiotics kind of wave goodbye as they cross um, into the bloodstream, whereas the probiotics keep going through the intestinal tract. And their major job in the context of co-administration with antibiotics is to protect the microbiome from the negative impact that those antibiotics may be having from the blood supply. So like we mentioned earlier, different strains of probiotic bacteria have the ability to occupy space on the lining of the digestive tract and prevent opportunistic microbes from setting up homes and causing problems like diarrhea or thrush. They also protect the lining of the digestive tract from inflammatory damage, which can occur when the composition of the microbiome is altered due to antibiotic therapy. Um, and they also interact with the immune system 
to essentially support the immune system's fight against the infection and also to reduce the likelihood of someone needing another course of antibiotics in the future. So probiotics are doing all of these beneficial things from the inside of the digestive tract, while the antibiotic therapy is doing its job from the outside of the digestive tract. And for that reason, it doesn't matter about taking your probiotics and antibiotics at the same time because they're not in the same place. That is amazing. And there is also like antibiotic associated like symptoms. Would you say like, um, like prolonged use? Um, like I'm thinking, um, is it C. diff infections, yeah. things like that? Um, do you have any comments on that? And, you know, the protective effect of like the co-administration? Like, do you see Yes. So there's quite a few ways of looking at the longer term impact that antibiotics can have on someone. And again, the first thing to acknowledge is that once someone has been prescribed antibiotics for a particular infection, they're actually, depending on age, they're actually quite likely to receive another course of antibiotics for that same infection. Mm. Where we see repeated courses of antibiotics, we see an correlating increased risk with um, that person acquiring particular um, infections. And one of those, as you mentioned, is Clostridium difficile, which is largely an opportunistic uh, pathogenic bacterium which can overgrow quite quickly in the absence of a robust and diverse microbiome. And it's, it causes, um, you know, can cause quite really quite severe watery diarrhea, which can be very difficult to treat. So there's a big problem with antibiotic resistance and Clostridium difficile. And there are many, many people who live with C. difficile in their digestive tracts for years and years and years. What we understand is that there are particular strains of probiotic which have significantly help to reduce the likelihood of C. difficile colonizing the digestive tract of someone on antibiotics and also can increase the immune system's response to C. difficile to make it more likely that it is eradicated. We are also beginning to see some studies looking at the long-term impact of antibiotic prescription um, with a dose-dependent relationship emerging in longitudinal studies um, regarding the number of courses of antibiotics given at a young age and an increased risk of things like bowel cancer at a later age, for example. So we know that any time we disrupt the developing microbiome, we are potentially making lifelong changes to this person's immune destiny to be so dramatic yeah. and we really need but it to is. it is mm. it really is and again the more that we're working with things like asthma and eczema research the more we can see that anything that disrupts the development of the microbiome in those first two to four years of life significantly alters that person's immune response for the long term it's it's quite terrifying but also quite exciting because there's so much we can do with probiotics empowering and at the same time yeah, you know it's, it's knowledge really power you know once we know better we can do better and if we continue to educate parents of younger children like I, it's a huge thing that I bang on about all the time now is you know we can change chronic disease for the next generation through oh, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right you're absolutely mm. right and, you know, just looking at something that kind of occasionally keeps me up at night is worrying <laughs> about the something that we talk about as the diminishing human microbiome, that the colonies of microbes which live on us and in us 
the presence of those colonies is becoming less and less diverse with each generation. So the human microbiome at this point in babies being born now is, oh my goodness, minuscule in comparison to the large number of microbes, which would have been the inhabitants of these children's great, great grandparents' digestive tracts. And we really need to take a long, hard look at what we're doing um, you know, what, what are we doing to our microbiomes and what does this mean for immune regulation in this current generation? Mm, absolutely. And what are your thoughts on, I think it's probably a smaller portion of the population, but some people for different medical reasons do get placed on antibiotics uh, lifelong or uh, ongoing. Um, what would your comment be to people that are in that situation? Well, I mean, the first thing is, you know, often there there is nothing you can do to change the fact that you need to take antibiotics long term. So let go of any guilt would be one thing. Yeah. Um, but it's very much going to be about protecting the diversity of the microbiome. Um, as much as you can. So we know that the best way to increase microbiome diversity is through a diverse diet. So eating as wide a variety of uh, foods as you possibly can, especially plant-based foods. So fruits and vegetables and legumes and nuts and seeds and anything that comes from a plant is going to be the best way to increase microbiome diversity. I would also very much look at specific strains of probiotic bacteria, which do have research attached to them regarding reducing the risk of infection. So there are a couple of really beautiful strains that come to mind for me immediately. Um, Lactobacillus rhamnosus, or, sorry, Lactobacillus plantarum heel 9 and Lactobacillus paracassii 8700 2. These are the two strains which jump into my mind straight away. These strains have been proven to reduce the risk of respiratory tract infection in uh, people who are clinically vulnerable to infection. So mm. someone who's on antibiotics long-term is going to fall into that category. Yeah, so exactly. I would very much look at what, what strains of bacteria are there which are out there to help you. What mm -hmm. can we find which has evidence behind it that significantly reduces your risk of, um, you know, contracting an infection you may be vulnerable to and looking at doing that in combination with lifestyle uh, interventions such as, you know, diet chosen for its microbiome diversifying effect. Yeah, gut 40. I, if for anyone listening and you uh, want to have a more diverse diet, I do have a free resource which um, can support you on that as well. So you can just go download that one and start eating 30 to 40 plant foods a week. So there's a handy resource for you if you want to do that. Um, let's move on to iron. Um, like, and I think we've got to like <laughs> summarize this because I know this, like antibiotics, iron is a huge topic um i have a particular question that i wanted to ask you today around this um i know that probiotics can be used to increase iron absorption but what i'm curious about is uh what i'm seeing in my clinical practice is that some of my patients have really big infections um or uh dysbiosis between an, an imbalance of bacteria that isn't favorable um, and I'm trying to lower some species of the you know maybe the not so good ones that are you know producing um, negative outcomes um, but some of them aren't budging and I'm wondering 
I've noticed that some of my patients is a correlation, I suppose, because they are taking iron and the, the role that iron may be playing in uh, patients with chronic infections and overgrowth um, and whether that could be fueling it. Um, and what, what can we do in that case if we mm. don't want to give iron, but they're iron deficient in terms of probiotics and iron absorption and yeah, I'm going to hand yeah. over to you because I yeah. think you understand my question. It's a very I do. And one. <laughs> what's going through my mind at the moment is, oh, my goodness, how am I going to answer this yeah. in less than three hours? I'm sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it, I'm sorry because there is so much to say about the topic of iron and the microbiome mm -hmm. and absorption. So much. I mean, this is actually one of my favorite topics to um, I've got a, a lovely, lovely um, webinar and presentation that we give on this topic at Activated Probiotics. And it goes for 90 minutes minimum because there is so much to say. But this so is for all the practitioners the, the go and listen yeah. to that. Yes, go and listen to that to get a deeper understanding. <laughs> uh, but edited highlights. Essentially, iron, iron is such a curious beast. It is a nutrient which is absorbed in a different way from any other nutrient. And the first thing to note about iron is that we have no excretory pathway for iron. Mm. That's really significant, that there is no pathway that our body gets rid of iron. The only way we lose iron after it has been absorbed is through losing blood. So iron is just constantly recycled through the body. And once iron is inside your bloodstream, it is with you for good unless you have a significant blood loss. For this reason, the body protects itself from absorbing excess iron. And over you know, the millennia of evolution, um, in some cases, our body has protected us too well from absorbing excess iron. Now, the reason we want to protect ourselves from excess iron is because iron is one of those substances where essentially the dose makes the poison. And what we mean by that is that iron is, it's far more dangerous to have too much iron than too little iron, put it that way. Iron is a potent um, free radical uh, producer. It's a potent pro-oxidant and it will cause inflammatory damage if it is present in too high of an amount. So our bodies have evolved to protect us from too much iron. What that means is that the absorption pathways of iron are super, super complex, and there are several pathways which all have to line up for us to absorb iron. This then ends up being the reason we see so many people with poor iron levels. It is almost in a wealthy nation like Australia, it is almost never due to not eating enough iron. There is plenty of iron in our diet most of the time. It's not about how much iron you are putting in your mouth. It's how much iron is actually able to cross into the bloodstream. So the very first thing to do whenever we see someone who's low in iron is not to say, oh, you need to eat more steak or, oh, you need to take these iron tablets. It's to put on our detective hat and say, that's really interesting. Why are you not absorbing iron very well? Could we have something going on in one of all of those pathways, which is responsible for absorbing iron? So we need to go straight through. We need to have someone who has healthy levels of stomach acid. 
we need to have someone who has a healthy duodenal lining because iron is absorbed across the duodenal wall, just like antibiotics are that we were just talking about five minutes ago. But there are a lot more enzyme systems involved in the absorption of iron. And those enzymes are produced in what we call the brush border, which is the collection of microvilli lining the villi themselves. So a way I always picture this is to say that the lining of your duodenum basically looks like a forest. And what we need to work on is making sure that if we can picture all of these trees growing on the inside of your duodenum, we need to make sure that the leaves on the trees are healthy because it's in the leaves on the trees that we are producing enzymes necessary for iron absorption. So first of all, we need healthy leaves, then we need healthy trees, then we need healthy soil that the trees are growing in. And this is talking about the enzymes produced in the brush border, the health of the villi themselves, and then the health of the enterocytes, the cells which line the duodenum, um, where iron is passed from the gut into the blood supply. Then we also need to look at someone's level of inflammation because one of the factors that most tightly controls the absorption of iron is how much inflammation someone has in their body. When a person is in a high state of inflammation, like for example, someone who has an infection or someone who has an autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's thyroiditis or like Crohn's disease or like type one diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis. This person lives with a state of chronic inflammation and the thinking, if you like, of their body is when you are in a state of inflammation, you don't want to absorb more iron because iron can be a fuel source for infectious agents. So evolution has evolved our bodies to reduce the absorption of iron when we are in a state of inflammation to prevent iron being available to feed pathogens. Um, and this is why when you have a cold or a flu, you won't absorb iron well because your body doesn't want to give iron to that rhinovirus or that influenza virus to enhance its ability to breed and reproduce faster. Naturally protecting. Exactly. Mm. But unfortunately, your body, in terms of receiving the message of inflammation, doesn't differentiate between an acute infection like a cold or a gastro infection and a chronic state of inflammation like someone living with Hashimoto's disease, essentially. So it's what we see as practitioners in our autoimmune patients all the time. They're not absorbing iron well. The answer is not to give more iron in the form of you know, meat or supplements. The answer is to work on reducing inflammation. We can do that in a couple of ways. And one of them is through, again, specific strains of probiotics, which have been proven to help with iron absorption. So the strain that we're looking at, Lactobacillus plantarum 299V, it's been a little bit of a megastar. In this I know. <laughs> it is a great strain. Um, and by the way, when I was over in Sweden last month, I actually met the researchers behind that strain, the research crew who isolated that strain and who brought it to, you know, to the world of clinical practice. So what an incredible you know, opportunity. I know. It's like meeting superstars. Yeah. Yeah, I totally like us yeah. microbiome nerds like yeah, yeah exactly. I'm just geeking out over here now going oh totally man. <laughs> out. 
Totally geeking out. Um, so that strain is so amazing for iron absorption for several reasons. First of all, it really works on enhancing the health of, if we go back to our tree analogy, the leaves on the tree as well as the trunk of the tree, as well as the soil that the tree is growing in. So 299V produces particular metabolites, uh, P-hydroxyphenolactic acid being one of them, which helps to enhance the expression of some of the enzymes we need to absorb iron. But as you pointed out yourself, Carly, as well, 299V also has a brilliant anti-inflammatory effect, not just on the duodenum, but actually on the whole of the body. So by reducing inflammation, we are helping to take away that message that your body doesn't want to absorb more iron. And this is helping to make, helping to make iron levels improve in the long term. Now, getting back to your question about what iron does with the composition of the microbiome, this is absolutely fascinating. And one mm. of the one of the reasons why I'm I'm generally I'm just going to put it out there I'm generally not a big fan of iron supplements. Yeah, is because first of all they have really you know a lot of people don't enjoy taking them. Iron iron is one of the prescribed medications with the lowest rate of compliance. Over fifty percent of people who are given iron by their doctor stop taking it, mm -hmm. and the reason for that is because it can cause a whole range of side effects from gastritis to nausea to constipation and gut pain. And it's just, it's not an enjoyable substance to take. And the reason for that is that iron is really quite literally causing inflammatory damage to your digestive tract. So in the upper digestive tract, we see this as, you know, gastritis, et cetera. In the lower digestive tract, something far more sinister is going on, that unabsorbed iron, so iron which passes through the digestive tract without crossing into the bloodstream, the presence of unabsorbed iron in the large intestine changes the composition of the microbiome. Fascinating. And what we know is that iron essentially increases presence of communities which are not desirable to be there. So unabsorbed iron in the microbiome will increase communities of proteobacteria, E. coli, Enterococcus, Bacterioidetes, Rosburia, Clostridium, Salmonella, Shigella, Campylobacter, and Citrobacter. All of these communities will be enhanced by the presence of unabsorbed iron. And what we see is a corresponding decrease in Firmicutes, Lactobacillus, Bifidobacterium, Prevotella, Rothia, and communities that we want to see more of. I'm not sure, not Carly. What we that, want. Not what we want to be having. No, not at all. And does that no. correlate with what you've been seeing? The one particular strain that I have been got my eye on is actually but the Lofia Wadsworthia. Okay. Um, but I would say, you know, overall, the amount of proteobacteria that yeah. I would say most people now have got a higher percentage of proteobacteria in their gut. Um, so I was, yeah, proteobacteria was also one of the other ones, but in particular is the Lofia Wadsworthia that I've been. Yeah, interesting. And like, you know, then there's the research on that with like the long-term um, implications with bowel cancer, you know, elevated levels of that. So it is something when it comes up with my patients that I really try to work hard on, you know, and it is a long-term thing, but I'm just a little bit, and now after today, even more sus on iron and the role that it might be playing with feeding yeah. that and, and making that worse. 
Yeah, and it, it you then have a fine line between, well, what do we do to meet this patient's needs when it comes to iron, you know, repletion? Yeah. And how, you know, how, and that's where I guess it's really important to see a really experienced practitioner like you who can balance all the risks and benefits and make a long-term plan. And, you know, we definitely wouldn't want anyone to hear this and be like, oh, I'm never taking my iron supplement again. Yes. It's going to be a far more nuanced approach than that. But it's something that I would just call out to all practitioners and patients out there is to just have a think about what could be behind the poor absorption of iron. And let's work with that rather than just keep throwing more and more iron into the pot, which yeah. is just going to further disrupt the microbiome. Especially when it's not responding. Like you do see that with patients too. Like you can, I've had some patients have to take iron ongoing for a really long time and you retest and it doesn't budge. So I think that shines a light even stronger on what we've just discussed as well. Oh, I totally um, agree. With, uh, before I have to say goodbye to you, which I really don't want to do, I could just sit here and keep talking to you all day. Um, I thought maybe because, you know, we get quite complex gut health, probiotic strains. We've been saying really fancy names today um, and it can get kind of complex and perhaps a little bit overwhelming for people. I want to ask you what are maybe three things, important things, like after your years of research and being in education and doing all of the wonderful things that you are for uh, on microbiome, what do you think are the three most important things that everyone should be trying to do to nourish their gut? It's such a good question. And my answer, my answer is going to be a little bit biased because these are three things that I love doing in my own life, but uh, they are, uh, they are things that are all supported by research as well. And, you know, really with the focus to enhancing microbiome diversity, the more we research, the more we just keep coming back to the same concept that the very best thing you can do for your gut health and by extension, your immune health and your metabolic health is having a diverse gut microbiome. And the three things that I'm going to suggest to feed the diversity of your microbiome are number one, we've already talked about, eat as wide a variety of plant foods as possible. Um, I am just the biggest greedy guts when it comes to food. I just think about food all the time. And honestly, <laughs> I plan all of my holidays and adventures around food. Um, right. and that was actually, believe it or not, that was actually the reason that my husband and I moved to Melbourne. So we were living in California at um, a few years ago and and he got a job offer to come to Melbourne and neither of us had lived in Melbourne before you know he's British and I grew up in Perth and he said well you know what do you think about moving to Melbourne and I'm like well Melbourne has great food so obviously yes <laughs> big tick so that, yeah, tick. so that, you know when I say that these these kind of inform my life decisions they really truly do mm. so number one eat as wide a variety of food as you possibly can especially plant foods number two travel that again, the research shows us that you will be exposed to different varieties of microbes in different parts of the world and meeting different people. Travel as widely as you can, eat local food everywhere you go, hug people. And in this way, you're coming into contact with more and more microbes. And this will be challenging and uh, you know, supporting your immune system development. And so that is my number two. 
And number three, have pets in the house and kiss them regularly. And again, this is especially important for young children. The research is super, super clear that children who grow up with animals in the house have a reduced risk of atopic conditions such as eczema and hay fever and um, asthma. And we now understand that, again, it's the presentation to the developing immune system of as wide a variety of microbes as possible, which influences the development of immune tolerance. So my advice to everyone is <clears throat> fill your house with pets and give them nice big smooches. And, you know, when I finish talking to you, I'm going to go and cuddle my dog and give her lots of kisses. I'm going to do the same for my cat. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and giving us a sneak peek today into what the landscape for the next couple of years is going to be like. It is always a pleasure. Is there anything else you would like to say or to share before I actually officially have to say goodbye to you? <laughs> well, I could keep talking forever, <laughs> but I will calm it down and say, come and visit us on the Activated Probiotics website. Um, we've got beautiful social media as well. And if you are a practitioner, you're very welcome to join the practitioner portal on activatedprobiotics.com.au. You're also very welcome if you use Facebook to join us in the Activated Probiotics Practitioner Network, if you are a practitioner. And and there we kind of can get as geeky as we like with chatting about research and case studies and all sorts of bacterial goodness. Beautiful. All of that will be in the show notes, show notes for you all as well. Thank you so much, Rebecca, and I can't wait to chat with you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Did you like what you heard? Leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more about my Nourish Gut program or the Nourish Gut Kids membership, head over to my website. Would you like to be a part of a community that gets it? Join our Facebook group, Nourish Gut Community, or come and follow me over on Instagram. All of these links can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time on the Nourish Gut Podcast.